0: Nazis on Ice The Worst Disney Live Action Crossover Ever Germany was left fucked in the wake of the First World War. The punitive terms of the Treaty of Versailles, dictated by the victors as both a form of humiliation and as an attempt at preventing Germany posing a military threat ever again, backfired. A nation already starving from the strictures placed on it by the very effective blockade established by the Royal Navy, reeled under the dispossession of all territorial claims outside Germany, the loss of 10% of the land comprising the Germany Otto von Bismarck united prior to the war, demilitarisation measures and financial penalties arising from a they-started-it framework of thinking that ignored every other factor contributing to the kick-off of hostilities other than the actions of and national response to Kaiser Wilhelm II who was given an excellent two-episode oral history treatment by Robert Evans and Jamie Loftus in episodes 97 and 98 of the Behind the Bastards podcast. In 1923, French and Belgian forces occupied the Rhineland in response to the German failure to pay reparations, further humiliating the economically crippled Deutschland. Because the treaty terms were mapped out based on the emotional whim of politicians, and not on a sound understanding of economic theory or recognition of sociological phenomena. Instead of hobbling Germany, the treaty actually radicalised it into the aggrieved, hyper-nationalistic plasma that embraced the rise of the National Socialist German Workers' Party and endorsed, or at least accepted, the power grabs that saw Adolf Hitler leading the nation in 1933. German ingenuity and business acumen saw the nation re-establish itself as a military force by the cunning use of overseas arms manufacturers and some less than actually cunning nods to subterfuge within German borders. Germany joined the side of the monarchist, catholic, conservative nationalists, rising up in 1936 against the left-wing governance of the Second Spanish Republic and showing Franco's nascent fascists how to really fash. Fascism was invented in Italy, and Franco's nationalists were already pretty good at it, but using dive bombers against the civilian population was kicked off by the Luftwaffe squadrons operating as the Legion Condor. That such terror bombing was later adopted by Allied nations doesn't make bombing civilians not a fascist initiative. The Spanish Civil War taught German military leaders how best to deploy and use the new technologies available to them, and galvanised German pilots and fighting units into the elite and cohesive forces Hitler released on Europe shortly after the end of the peninsular fighting in early 1939. The experienced German army and air force swept through Poland, the Low Countries, France and Norway, and nearly aced Britain but for a handful of pilots able to adapt ineffective British interwar defensive fighter tactics in time to effectively counter the German pilots, veterans of the Legion Condor, during the Battle of Britain, and to thereby postpone Operation Sea Lion, the imminent seaborne invasion of the British Isles. The Spanish Civil War was the first flare-up of tensions brewing in Europe, the same instability setting the stage for the German Blitzkrieg attacks that became the historical marker of the start of the Second World War. Germany couldn't feed its population without large food imports. The arable land was already used to its maximum capacity, and with no external territorial interests left, the nation had to pay for imported food with hard currency. The stage was set for a third German attempt at territorial claims in Antarctica. All the ground nominally claimed by Dragalski and Filchner was nulled by the Treaty of Versailles, and with Norway, Britain, France, Australia, New Zealand, and Argentina, busily drawing lines on maps and charts, and Chile making ready to follow suit. The first Chilean claim arose in 1904, but it wasn't until 1940 that the government issued a written statement of the claim with appended cartography. German geographer and cartographer hans Peter Kossack agitated for new German efforts in the Southern Ocean in 1935 and again in 1937 the only German activity in the south between Filchner's expedition and then being an echo sounding survey aboard the Meteor, reaching into the South Atlantic as far as 64 degrees south. Cossack proposed following Richard Byrd's lead, using aircraft to explore the possibility of a submarine trough between the Weddell and Ross seas, approaching from the Weddell seaside. His relative youth and lack of high latitudes experience failed to garner the support of German geography bodies, and this prevented his applying for funding, but the noise he generated about Antarctic exploration resonated with a few prominent minds, less interested in geography and more interested in fat. Nazi leaders recognised that in order to arm up effectively for the looming war, Germany needed to decrease its dependence on food imports. Hard currency not spent on food could be spent on the raw materials needed in engineering the next generation of war machines and expediting their manufacture. Hitler's concept of Lebensraum, living space, included not only reclaiming the ground the Versailles Treaty removed from Germany, but expanding a Reich, a realm or empire, that would, in addition to allowing space for a growing Aryan population, provide cheap food sufficient to keep the existing population fed without having to pay whatever the Deutsch equivalent of Johnny Foreigner was. Large swathes of Poland and Russia looked favourite for farming to feed the nation, but bulk fats and oils were supplied to Germany at that time by Norwegian whaling interests, Germany importing around 200,000 tonnes of the stuff a year at the time. Hitler's economics minister, Hjalmar Schacht, introduced an economic plan seeking... Foreign trade without foreign currency, prioritizing strategic materials over civilian consumption on the promise that a successful war would see a period of austerity pay a rich dividend. Go without your coffee for a few years, and we'll see you get all the coffee you can eat in a few years more. The plan relied on remilitarization and rapid expansion before other nations recognized their own military shortfallings and caught up their technology and training by which time Germany would be entrenched in its newly acquired Lebensraum. Hermann Göring was placed in charge of foreign exchange, and under his leadership, the Wehrmacht, the German armed forces, received between 70 and 80% of all imported materials. Göring in turn placed Helmut Voltat, economist and political scientist, in charge of German whaling efforts. The idea of a self-sufficient Germany arose before National Socialism swept Hitler to power, but the Nazis adopted and refined it, pushing the timetable. The FAT plan went into action as a government-controlled monopoly on lipids to manage the resource efficiently and identify shortfalls. Germany was, at the time, the largest consumer of Norwegian-supplied whale oil, but the Wehrmacht's drain on foreign currency reserves made this a fragile aspect of German food supply. In 1935, a doubling in the price of Norwegian supplied whale oil saw Germany tool up for Southern Ocean whaling, an enterprise deemed too complex and too risky for investment at the previous price per barrel arrangement. German margarine and detergent manufacturers commissioned the conversion of a cruise vessel to a factory ship and built a fleet of eight chaser boats. The Yarn Vellum and its chasers, carrying the experienced German whaler Otto Kral, who gained his whaling spurs, ice experience and skipper's tickets, working for the compania Argentina de Pesca out of Goetviken, were joined by two chartered Norwegian factory ships and their chasers, operating under the aegis of subsidiary companies of existing German detergent manufacturers and oil millers. The fleet grew each year as newly built and commissioned ships and boats came online, and within three austral summers, Germany became the third largest whaling nation, bumping Japan from its place behind the UK and Norway, accounting for 12% of the worldwide catch in the 1938-39 Austral summer. Voltart managed the growing fleet, oversaw the production of a German-language handbook on whaling for fun and profit, campaigned against ecologically or economically derived international quota systems or fishing limits that might curb German economic returns while the German fleet was still finding its feet, and spotted that a territorial claim in Antarctica would give a swerve to any attempt to force license fees or tariffs on German interests by other claimant nations. He devised a plan by which Germany might efficiently make such a claim by establishing a whaling depot in an area not yet claimed, and proposed a reconnaissance voyage by a ship carrying an aircraft fitted out for aerial survey and photography as the first step toward that goal. Voltat thought that the first expedition should maximise the area covered at the expense of accuracy, and so didn't figure on sending slow-moving and resource-heavy ground-truthing control parties ashore. Ground control points could be established during a second expedition, while a shore party built a coastal base. Hermann Goering approved the plan in May 1938, and assigned a Deutsche Lufthansa catapult ship, the Schwabenland, and its two mail-carrying Dornier J-model Superwhiles, Passat and Boreas, to the project. The national airline, Deutsche Lufthansa, was, at the time, using these ships and airframes to span the Atlantic with a fast mail service between West Africa and Brazil. The Dorniers, 10-tonne enclosed cockpit developments of the airframes Amundsen applied to his attempted Arctic crossing, could cover long distances but didn't have the transoceanic range to span the Atlantic in a single leg. The Deutsche Lufthansa service required a mid-ocean rendezvous with a catapult ship. After a flying boat landed nearby, these ships towed a bamboo and canvas drag sail in their wake, onto which the aircraft could taxi, progressively pressing the sail under the flying boat's hull as it drew nearer the ship, until entirely cradled by the drag sail and drawn forward by it at which point the aircraft's engines were cut so lifting strops could be rigged and the ship's crane could lift the aircraft aboard. The aircraft received fuel and any mechanical attention needed after the first leg of the crossing, after which it was mounted on a sled on the ship's Heinkel-built catapult system. Gun cotton charges then propelled the sled along the catapult track, which could be aimed at either side of the ship's track, to bring the aircraft up to 93 knots in a few seconds, sending the mail on its way, saving fuel that would otherwise be used up in the taxing business of taxiing and taking off, and minimising the stresses placed on a flying boat hull trying to achieve flying speed in oceanic swells. Dornier promoted the various versions of the while, as able to operate from flat ice, and tests on northern hemisphere lakes, and during the Amundsen-Ellsworth expedition, demonstrated the truth of this, though in the fraught circumstances of the Amundsen trip, The airframe banged itself up enough in the takeoff run on the ice that it wasn't something anyone involved in the incident would want to repeat regularly. Antarctica likely didn't offer genteel icy expanses equivalent to choice northern lakes, and I don't think anyone involved in the expedition ever expected the whales to land anywhere but on water. The Schwabenland came with a crew already experienced in catapult operations and whale retrieval, and a captain... Alfred Kotas, experienced in managing that crew and the ship. Deutsche Lufthansa pilots Rudolf Mayer and Richard Heinrich Schirmacher, carried on with the Schwabenland to fly the Superwhiles. Waltart added Captain Krall to the complement to act as ice pilot and Antarctic operations specialist. For overall expedition leadership, Waltart assigned Kriegsmarine Captain Alfred Julius Fritz Ritscher whom I misnamed in a previous episode as Hans Richer. Alfred Richer gained his polar spurs in the German Arctic expedition as captain of the Herzog Ernst, operating under the leadership of Herbert Schroeder Strantz. Originally seeking to transit the Northeast Passage for the first time since Adolf Nordenweld's effort the previous century, fundraising didn't go as well as hoped, and the expedition goal shifted to making the first south to north crossing of Nordalstlandet the second largest island of the Svalbard archipelago. The expedition departed Tromsø in Norway in August 1912. Richter became involved in the aerial survey component of the expedition, gaining his pilot's license while among the ice, though Ludek and Summerhays, whose book The Third Reich in Antarctica provided the bulk of the information used in preparing this episode, account his flying training as taking place during the First World War. the expedition became stranded with the ship trapped in ice. The crew split up, Richer choosing to take refuge in a sealer's hut with two companions and his dog. Realising they wouldn't survive the winter, Richer made a 200 kilometer trek to Advent Bay, now Longyearbyen, on the larger island of Spitsbergen over the course of nine days. On reaching the mining settlement, Richer Starving and frostbitten in one foot, the other big toe and a fingertip, raised the alarm. A rescue party headed out a week later, on the full moon, returning with six of the fourteen expedition members still out in the cold. The ice freed the Herzog Ernst the following summer, and Richer sailed at home, seven of its original complement still somewhere out in the Arctic. Richer piloted reconnaissance aircraft for the Imperial German Navy during the war and served as a navigation consultant to Deutsche Lufthansa in the 1920s. The rise of National Socialism saw Richer divorce his Jewish wife, artist Susan Richer née Lowenthal, in 1934 for fear that the marriage might mar his career in the party's war department. He saw Susan write with alternative accommodation and she continued to keep Alfred's home and look after their children while he was at work. Alfred helped Susan hide her identity from the authorities, and when this effort faltered, he helped her fake her suicide to protect her from capture and the concentration camps. The same year the divorce came through, Alfred Richer received his commission as a commander in the Navy, so the political gambit paid off, but at the cost of making me think extremely poorly of him for chucking his relationship and his wife under the Nazi bus all the cachet he earned from his heroic, sleepless, starving slog through the snow to save his colleagues, blown out the window. It's easy to condemn people in the past when you're sitting comfortably, well-fed and safely housed in the present, and I often ask myself how I would have acted in a given person's shoes. I guess we might find out soon if my homeland and the homeland of my wife continue not only to enable, but to actively promote racist, fear-mongering assholes and to tolerate, instead of shunning and marginalising, fascists. Freedom of speech is a right. An audience is a privilege. If I see Nipples McGee or other Australian neo-Nazis getting platformed by Australian media outlets again, the first option will be to see if New Zealand will have me back. Jacinda Ardern seems pretty canny when it comes to dealing with fascists appropriately. I should mention again that National Socialists of the era rarely referred to themselves as Nazis. The word is an abbreviated form of the name Ignatius, and was used as a taunt by people outside the party or movement, or philosophy, or whatever you want to define it as, to link those within it to a dim-witted comic strip character of that name. In Australia you might say Bogan, in the USA it might be Redneck, in the Falkland Islands you might say Benny. It's just a derogatory label people use to dismiss or diminish the people they applied it to. Having said all that, if ever an in-group justified the use of belittling and derogatory labels, the Nazis did. And I'll use that truncated version of Ignatius to denote National Socialists and National Socialism from here on out. So, that's where Captain Dr. Alfred Richer joins the ice coffee narrative. Hard as nails in the snow and hard of heart in ambition, working his groove in the Kriegsmarine when Reich's Field Marshal Hermann Goering taps him on the shoulder to lead the German surge south on state-sponsored orders to establish a German foothold in Antarctica, targeting the region between 14 degrees west and 20 degrees east. In a philatelic side note, Voltart also ensured that German-flagged factory vessels operating in the southern ocean fielded a post office, giving the government a small but official presence near Antarctica, if not actually on it. No other whaling fleet featured such facilities. Preparations for the reconnaissance expedition went ahead in secret, the Germans hoping to forestall any legal moves to capitalise on Norwegian efforts in droning mordland Lars Christensen's fleet's explorations not receiving Norwegian parliamentary recognition to that date. All requisitions and equipment were marked as belonging to an arctic expedition. Among these materials were cases of one and a half metre long aluminium javelins, tipped with stainless steel and marked with swastikas on their fletchers. Tests in the Swiss Alps demonstrated the javelins would penetrate half a metre into hard packed snow when dropped from 2,000 feet above ground level, and Goering expected Richer to leave the Nazi footprint on Antarctica as a string of aluminium swastikas likely more resilient to local conditions than a flag and flagstaff, and every bit as compelling a territorial claim as a flag dropped from an aircraft. More so if you figure more flags would be more better. And If you're going to argue that a flag dropped from a passing aircraft counted as a valid and sound claim to territory, then a flag held aloft and clear of the ground, as any vexillologist worth their salt will tell you is the right and proper way to respect a flag, must arguably trounce a flag attached to a rock or lying flat on its flagstaff. The javelin fletches might not flap as much as the average flag, but I don't know if flappiness is a requirement, and it certainly doesn't seem to matter to anyone who paints the national insignia on their buildings or machinery, which is a common sight in Antarctica if you normalise the data in your visual record for ice. Wilkins, Bird, Larson and Ellsworth... All earnestly dropped flags from the Antarctic sky, and I think it's fair to assume they expected those flags to carry some meaning. Anyone who expected their dropped flags to carry meaning should afford the same meaning to other flags dropped in the same manner, unless they thought they could validly kick up about the raw materials the flags comprised, which would only draw attention to how flimsy a flag actually is in terms of owning the land on which it lies. Limply. And even then, a German vexillologist could cite the disrespect letting a national flag touch the ground or remain in place through darkness, as constituting evidence that people who deposited it didn't really hold to the values they professed to place in that particular piece of magical cloth and embroidery. If you're going into bat with nonsense where your willow should be, you can't act surprised if someone claims you're out because you are holding your nonsense the wrong way up. A weighted flappy German flag would mark the furthest south reached by each individual survey flight, though I don't find any record as to whether this was the black, white and red imperial tricolour the Nazis replaced the flag of the Weimar Republic with, or a swastika in a white circle against a field of sanguine. I think the imperial form fell out of use in 1935, and photographs taken during landings show expedition members holding aloft the swastika version. But perhaps an attempt at gaining international recognition, which the swastika version didn't receive, as an incident in the USA during which the swastika version was torn from flagpoles and destroyed without legal or political ramifications demonstrated, required the black, white and red imperial version. If anyone's really interested in finding out, they can always send me to Droning Maudland with some skidoos and a support team, and I'll go looking for any flappy remnants. Erich Drygalski paid a visit to Hans Richer to provide advice on Antarctic operations, though the great distance between the Gaussberg and Richer's proposed area of operations likely made all but the most general information of little use beyond the expertise already embodied in Captain Kral. To give what was most decidedly a political and economic expedition a sheen of exploratory credibility, Richer populated the crew with leading German meteorologists, oceanographers and physicists. Dr Ernst Hermann, joined as geographer and geologist. His experience in geologizing and applying aerial photography in Svalbard, where he used the Fiesle Storch as his slow-flying airframe of choice, made him an apt choice, but his membership of the Freemasons precluded his joining the Nazi party, and thereby stunted his career development. Leo Geburak, veteran of two expeditions to Svalbard, joined as oceanographer. Photographer Max Bundeman flew in Lars Christensen's Lockheed Vega during a photographic survey of Svalbard. The other expedition aerial photographer, Siegfried Salter, gained his expertise in the re-established air force. A meteorological team would provide forecasts for the flying program while accumulating data from rarely visited realms. Lead meteorologist, Dr. Herbert Regula, already experienced in working aboard catapult ships from his time aboard the Schwabenland's sister ship in the Atlantic mail operations, joined from the German Maritime Observatory, overseeing Heinz Langer, a radio sonde specialist, Walter Kruger, a precision engineer and a veteran of the Meteor's oceanographic voyage in the South Atlantic in the 1920s, and repairman Wilhelm Goeckel. Karl-Heinz Paulsen, an oceanographer who gathered data for his doctoral thesis aboard the Yarnvellum factory ship in the 1937-1938 whaling season, and whale biologist Eric Barkley, experienced aboard the Karl Larsen factory vessel, rounded out the scientific complement. In a final flourish to the Arctic subterfuge, Voltart arranged that the expedition funding should pass through the German Research Council rather than any of the agencies overseeing the Nazi four-year economic development plan. The Schwabenland required some modifications for its new task. German shipyards, at the time, were almost exclusively turned over to naval requirements, but the importance of the third German Antarctic expedition to the four-year plan saw the catapult vessel receive its six weeks on the slip, sufficient to get the extra accommodations, laboratories, echo-sounding transducers, hydrography winch, balloon prep space and launching window, darkroom, and all the associated storage spaces in place, and for the bow to receive reinforcing sheathing, and the plimsoll line a steel girdle belt to fend off ice along the waterline, in time to still see the expedition away from Hamburg on schedule. Three and a half thousand tons of sand and rock ballast went into the holds, topped up with empty casks that might act as reserve buoyancy should the holds fill with water after an ice-mediated puncture. A cheap and quick alternative to welding in new bulkheads that might prevent flooding spreading throughout the ship. Two weeks prior to departure, Captain Coltus drew the ship's complement of 82 together for a screening of Discovery, the docudrama of the second Bird Antarctic expedition, to show everyone the sort of conditions they might expect in the south. The ship departed Hamburg on the 17th of December 1938. (laughs)